So here we are, another season of Advent, a season of waiting, of anticipation, joining with the history of the church over centuries, a teaching tool early in the history of the church, a way that especially illiterate people were reminded and instructed about the significance of the Incarnation as Free church people, as evangelicals, we tend not to pay much attention to the historical liturgical calendar of the church, but we love Advent because it's so appropriate that we set our lives on pause to some degree and recognize the importance of the events that we commemorate, the meaning that all of that brings into the way in which we live. The season of Advent, a time of promise, a time of joy, a time of hope, a time of love. You'll be hearing these words over the next several weeks. And all of it fulfilled in the coming of a baby, a time of great drama, but also an event of great mystery, right? And in so many ways, we've talked about hope this morning. In so many ways, hope can be difficult to find because nearly everywhere we look, there, there is abuse or betrayal or conflict or tension or bitterness. Thinking of this message in this series just the last couple of days, driving up Las Positas, I saw an individual struggling in a wheelchair, hard to get up the hill. I couldn't get back to help him, but it was just an indication his body was clearly broken and devastated. And that's what we see as we look around us. And we talk about hope, and we talk about joy, and we talk about love, but we recognize that there is devastation everywhere. Some of us, it's hard to read the news. It's hard to to follow what's happening in the world because of the hurt, the heartache, the bloodshed. This is the reality. It's all around us. There's a, a shadow of brokenness over everything we see. And the truth is, think about this a minute. Every person walking the face of the earth recognizes it shouldn't be this way. That's part of the human condition. Regardless of culture, regardless of language, regardless of belief or creed or faith, everyone recognizes life shouldn't be this way. What message do we have? It's perhaps understandable that the cynic, the skeptic, watches those of us who are Christians when Christmas time rolls around and, and they think that we're just engaged in wishful thinking, that this is just some kind of pie in the sky by and by. It's, it's quaint or sentimental that we light candles, that we sing songs, that we, we celebrate, that we, we talk about living in faith, that we talk about hope. They say, look at the world around you. They say, wake up. They say, look at, the, at what's going on on the geopolitical scene, but look at what's going on in your own family. If you're honest, look at what's going on in your own heart. That's the skeptic. Unrealistic and unable to address real problems, they say. But we know differently, and we're to live differently. That's what the Bible tells us. This is the way we're supposed to live. St. Peter, the apostle, writes to Jesus' followers living in a, in a no less broken world. And remember what he said? He said, have no fear of them. In other words, the critics, the skeptics, the accusers. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your heart, 
honor, set aside Christ as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, see this, for a reason for the hope that is in you. How can you live in hope, the skeptic asks. Are you, just, are, are you just living in sentimentality? Are you just, is this just some kind of strange wish fulfillment? How can you live in hope? And Peter said we're supposed to be ready to give an answer for that. What we need to do, what we need to remember, what we need to hold to is where we're going to focus our attention for the next few Sundays. And we're going to go back to the foundations. We're going to go back to the roots We're going to celebrate an Old Testament Christmas, an Old Testament Christmas. We're going to spend the next few Sundays going into the Older Covenant, the Scriptures of Israel, and find there the promises that we celebrate on December 25th with the coming of the Savior, an Old Testament Christmas. And so we'll begin at the beginning. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3 this morning, Genesis 3. And we're going to look at a garden Christmas, a garden Christmas from Genesis 3. Nearly all of us know the background of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. This is creation, and in the original creation, in what is called the Garden of Eden, we sometimes use the term paradise, and what was there in the original creation, all was good. In fact, God is pleased. He said, all is very good. But then we reach chapter 3, And we find, as has been said often, we find midnight in the Garden of Eden. We find something goes wrong, something goes off the track, off the rails. And what we find, we'll be dealing with Genesis beginning next year. We're going to work through the book of Genesis, and so it's really the book of beginnings. And so I don't want to over-preach this text because we're going to have to revisit it in the matter of several weeks. But the reality is, we, we, we find the good and generous Creator being doubted. We find the goodness of God, the Creator, being questioned, being ultimately disobeyed. The tempter comes to Adam and Eve, and he questions the goodness of God, and he causes them to question, to doubt, and ultimately to disobey. And that's what you find, and we know the story. The tempter comes and and presents the temptation for autonomy, for independence, for freedom, for ultimate self-expression. And Adam and Eve engage that temptation, and they disobey. And what happens is the center suddenly is exchanged. Because what we find is that in creation, God and His glory are the center of everything. And suddenly, Adam and Eve insist on being the center. They exchange the appropriate center, the wondrous, amazing, glorious glory of God, the ultimate treasure, and they decide that they prefer to be the center It's the nature of sin, it's the nature of pride, it's the nature of disobedience. And so they become focused, they become self-centered, they become self-focused, and there are, watch this, we know it, but let's remind ourselves of it, there are consequences when that happens. When we recognize where the center should be, and we choose to shift that focus to ourselves, when we recognize to whom the glory belongs... And we decide that we'll become an independent, self-expressive individual, finding our own meaning and our own glory. When that happens, there will always be consequences. And we read about the consequences in Genesis chapter 3, 
specifically, and there's far more here, but specifically we'll begin in verse 14. God has come and confronted Adam and Eve. There's this acknowledgement that the serpent, the evil one, energizing a serpent in the garden, the serpent that talked, yes indeed, through the power of the evil one, through supernatural ability. Look at verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, here it is, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. These are the beginnings of the consequences of the disobedience of sin. And here's what I'm trying to show you this morning. As we look at Genesis chapter 3, what I hope that you'll see before we're through is that this passage reveals so much about your life and my life today. First of all, this passage shows us and reveals why the world is the way it is. Why the world is the way it is. That's what we find here. Because in this familiar text, all of paradise is corrupted in a millisecond. We, we recognize there's relational corruption and flaw, but, but also physically. Everything, everything goes downhill. Everything in a millisecond is ruined. All of nature is tainted with abnormality now. All hearts are perverted. Families are infected. Why is the world the way it is? In a word, it's the fall. That explains why the world is the way it is. That explains why our hearts break sometimes. That explains why people fail to measure up to expectations. It explains why there's betrayal. It explains why we fail to love the way we should. This is the reason the world is the way it is, because of the fall. And there are, in this text, there are viral consequences. It's not just a one-to-one -one consequence. That's not the way sin works. There's a, a viral consequence. You know how viruses spread. We've heard too much about viruses over the last few years, haven't we? But this is the nature of sin and disobedience. And this is what God says. Let me show it to you. We've already read verse 14. That's the curse upon the serpent itself. The serpent energized by the evil one in symbolism. The serpent is cursed now to, to crawl on its belly. We don't know what the posture was of the serpent before this. The implication, likely, is that the serpent was a glorious creature. It was, it was certainly appealing enough that even Adam were willing to listen to the serpent, not asking the question of why this serpent was talking, but nevertheless, they were willing to listen. So there was some appeal there, but now the serpent is cursed and crawls now on its belly and will eat dust. We still use that phrase, don't we? When someone is, is, is in a race and they're left behind, we say that they, they ate dust, right? This is a curse upon the serpent, but symbolically it's a statement about the effects of the evil one and the responsibility and culpability of the evil one. And we even see this left over in our instinctive reactions because it's, it's only abnormal people that like snakes. I just want to say that. Even Indiana Jones, right? He's afraid of snakes. Not afraid of anything, but he's afraid of snakes. That's the nature 
the nature of this curse. But there's far more than that. If the curse had only been on an on a animal that whatever its previous iteration was, it now crawls on its belly, if that were the limit of the curse, it wouldn't really be that much of a big deal. But it gets much worse. Look down in verse 16. You see the effects of the fall and the effects of the curse as it relates to the family. In verse 16, to the woman, God said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. And that's the difficulty, not just the pain of childbirth itself, but likely from what we know in the rest of Scripture, the ongoing burden and the pain that children can bring us in our families, especially to mothers. The pain of relationships, the pain of loss, the pain of of disappointment, the pain of fear, the concern, the discomfort, all of this is involved in birthing and raising children. Also in relationships in marriage, look at the last part of verse 16, the, the effects of the fall and the curse upon our relationships. God says, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. It's a very difficult verse in Hebrew, but that's likely an accurate translation. The point is now, instead of being united, instead of being complementary, now you are a competitor with your spouse. And there will be the possibility, not only of you not wanting to follow his leadership, but there's also the built-in possibility in the fall of of the one who should be leader being abusive and being harsh. And so the fall and its effects ruin relationships. And then, lest the man be left out, beginning in verse 17, Adam is addressed, and you see the effects of the curse and the fall upon vocation, upon work. It says, And to Adam, God said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. It's and thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Pause right here. And this is code. And we use it, I use it at my house all the time. My wife gets tired of me hearing about it. Whenever something goes wrong, I'll say, thorns and thistles. Thorns and thistles. This is the nature of trying to get anything done in life. Things are not easy anymore. Things are not, are, are not without pain. They're not without effort And because of the curse, this is the reason, again, that the world is the way it is. Because of the fall. Thorns and thistles, verse 18. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. And then that brings up the effects of the curse upon mortality itself. Because look in verse 19. For out of the ground you were taken, out of it the ground you were taken, For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now here's what this is saying. All of the garden, all of God's blessings that he designed to bless his people are now tainted with the effects of the fall. Everything good that God intended is still intended for good, but it cannot be enjoyed, it cannot be received it cannot be experienced with the level of pleasure and blessing that god intended because now everything is tainted from the fall it's a viral effect from this one act of disobedience and so we can see why the world is the way it is everywhere we look there is fallenness the world still lives under this curse 
Truly, this is paradise lost. Paradise lost. Do you recognize this is why Jesus, as he stood at the graveside of his friend Lazarus, that he knew he was getting ready to raise from the dead. But in John chapter 11, it says that Jesus stood there and wept. Why did he weep? He wept because at death especially, at the moment of death and that separation from the one you love, at that moment is where the abiding effects of the fall are most easily recognized and often are most powerfully felt. As you have scarred the earth and you laid the remains, the only way that you've known your loved one, you've laid the remains of that loved one into the ground and you experience what began back in the garden with the fall. This is the reason the world is the way it is. First of all, because of the fall. The second thing I think we find in this text is we find out why the struggle seems to never end. Why the struggle seems to never end. Look with me in verse 15 again. We read it, but let's revisit it for a moment. It says in verse 15, God says, and now he's speaking, again, he's speaking to the serpent here. He says, I will put enmity or hostility, I will put hostility or enmity between you, in other words, the serpent and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. And literally, some of our translations translate it seed. It's the most accurate or literal translation of the Hebrew word there. Between your seed or offspring and her, the woman's offspring. Now what you have here is you have the reason that the struggle seems to never end. This is the original culture war. This is the the cosmic conflict that's played out in every single generation and in every single nation, in every single relationship, in every single home, in every single heart and life. Why does the struggle seem to never end? Why is there such hostility? It's because of rebellion in a word. It is rebellion. The struggle never seems to end because of rebellion. It is inbred in our hearts. It's part of our sinful DNA. It's there. It exists. And it explains the reason that we can never seem to really catch a victory. We can never seem to really get on top of it all. We feel like we make progress and then we fail. And it cycles around over and over again. If you look at history itself, you have to ask the question, why are people... I mean, humans are reasonably intelligent people. We've been to the moon by now. And yet we can't seem to get along without killing one another. And you'd be justified in asking the question, why is that? Why does it never seem to end? And this text says that there is enmity, there is hostility between the evil one and his working and the one that is God's representative. So on a macro level, this is the conflict in cultures and kingdoms, but it comes down to a micro level in our own families and our homes and our hearts because there is something in our lives that causes us to drive toward rebellion instead of submission to God. There's an ongoing battle of values. It's a war of truth. It's a war between those who follow the serpent, as it were, and those who are in another family line. 
those who are now an offspring of someone else, not the serpent. The Bible talks about this still, even after Jesus has come. The Bible still describes it this way. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, regarding unbelievers and the world's systems, this is what we read. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So with unbelievers and systemically with the unbelievers of this world and the unbelieving systems of this world, this is the reason they're still in rebellion. It's the reason the conflict never seems to end. But it goes much more personal than that. Because you remember what Paul says in Romans 7? He's talking about the ineffectiveness of trying to live by the law. But we can relate to this experience, can't we? For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Why does the struggle never seem to end? Because you've got sin dwelling in you. And so do I. And this is, helps explain the world the way it is. This is the reason the world is the way it is, because of the fall. It's the reason the struggle seems to never end. It's because of rebellion. You see, God tells us why the world goes on the way it is. And at Advent, as we're thinking about the coming of Jesus, we're anticipating that these problems are going to be addressed. Well, still the question is how. Is there anything in Genesis 3 that tells us how God will address these issues. I'm glad to say there is. Because look at the last part of verse 15. It's an enigmatic text, but there's here a promise. At the end of verse 15, the second part of the verse, God says this, He, speaking of the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman, He shall bruise your head, serpent, and you shall bruise his heel. Now what does that mean? Well, it's a promise. It's a promise. It's an oblique promise. I recognize that. And it's not intended to communicate all that God would do. You don't have the specifics here. But here in the very beginning, when everything goes off the rails, God provides a glimpse, a hint. He provides a, a brief foreshadowing of the solution. And it's why we can still have hope. It's why we can have hope, because God will not leave things the way they are. This oblique promise, it doesn't communicate everything that God is going to do, but it's intended to raise the anticipation that the fall is not the end, that the rebellion that we've talked about, it will be put down. Look at it again. It says the woman's offspring or seed. I said earlier that the most literal translation is seed. Here's the interesting thing about that. Especially in ancient Near East cultures, you didn't talk about a woman's seed. The man is the one who plants the seed. We still instinctively understand this. That's, our, that's the way biology works. And yet here, in this first, just initial glimpse of God's miraculous, mysterious plan, 
There's an emphasis not on the seed of the man, which is the way the world works, but it's on the seed of the woman. Now, what might God be saying there? God, without doubt, is setting the stage for something unusual. His plan is going to be unexpected. His plan will have elements to it that are shocking. And now, as we look back, as they in the beginning were looking forward, and they heard just this implicit, oblique promise, and they heard God talk about the seed of the woman, now as we look back, and we know the story, we're going to sing about it this month, we're going to celebrate it, we're going to acknowledge it, this is the birth of a virgin. It's the virgin birth. It's birth that's miraculous. It's unusual. And even the terminology in this first promise, the terminology is indicative of the fact that God is going to do something unusual and miraculous and unexpected, something that only God can do. And indeed, such was the birth of Jesus our Savior. And so this is the reason that theologians Nearly all conservative and faithful theologians would look at this and they call it the first promise. It's the first gospel. There's even a fancy term for it, the proto-evangelium, the proto, the first evangelium gospel, the first gospel. This is the first gospel. It's the promise of a solution, the promise of a champion, the promise of a deliverer, the promise of a rescuer. And this is what at least this is the basis, the beginning, of what faith looked like for Old Testament believers. Go with me in your mind back into what we call the Old Testament. Next week we'll be looking at Abraham and Isaac. What did they believe in order to be reconciled? What did they believe? What was faith for them? We often say, you've heard it said likely, well, they looked forward to the cross and believed that Jesus would come and die for their sins. They didn't understand that. But they knew that God had promised to send a Redeemer. They knew as they stood before a holy God, they needed some kind of mediator. And God had promised in this first gospel, God had promised that one would come. And even though his heel would be bruised, that the head of the serpent would be bruised, would be struck. Some translations even say crushed. And that's what you have here. You have the promise of a Redeemer. And that's what Old Testament believers believed. If you want to ask the question, how did Old Testament believers get saved? That's what they believed. They had faith in the God of Israel that He would provide a Redeemer. They didn't understand all the details. But they knew they needed a Redeemer. And this is the first promise. And now as we look back, God has fulfilled that promise in all of these events that we celebrate and sing about this month with the coming of Jesus and then ultimately His perfect life and then his sacrificial death and his power and resurrection. This is the promise of the gospel. And so if you look back again at verse 15, you see the contrasts. You see the contrast between the woman and the serpent. You see the contrast between the woman's seed and the serpent's seed. You see the contrast between the heel wound and the head wound. The head wound indicating a mortal wound ultimate death, ultimate victory. And this is what happened at Calvary. This is what happened when Jesus hung on the cross. The cosmic war 
this conflict, the culture conflict, the, the fruit of all the cosmic rebellion, it all comes to a head on the cross. It all comes to a head on a, on a Roman cross on a Judean hillside 2,000 years ago. This was the battle of champions where it appeared that the sacrifice that God had sent was conquered in death. But what did Jesus say? Jesus didn't say, I'm finished. He said, it is finished. And our champion won. It is finished, yet not without great pain. Not without wounding. And again, these oblique words from Genesis 3. Adam and Eve could not have understood them. But as God curses the serpent, He says, yes indeed, you're going to bruise His heel, but He's going to bruise your head. He's going to strike your head. He's going to crush your head. And they could not have understood it in its depth. But now we look back and we see what God was saying. Nails through the wrists, through the heels, great pain as our, as our Savior died. And not even so much the physical pain, but the, the, the weight of carrying our sin and guilt before His Holy Father, of our sin coming upon Him. This was the great suffering of our Savior. And yet he cried out in the end, it is finished. It is finished. Think about it this way. God's curse on the serpent, on Satan, God's curse on the serpent and Satan revealed his ultimate cure for sin. When God said, you won't win, there's going to be one come, the seed of the woman, and you may bruise his heel, but he will crush your head when God said that, he basically was foretelling the gospel. And Jesus died not just for Adam and Eve. Jesus died not just for Abraham and Isaac. Jesus died for you and for me. Jesus took our guilt. He is our champion. He's the one that if we will put our hope and faith in him, we no longer are part of the seed of the serpent, but we become part of the offspring of the woman, the offspring of the Holy One, the offspring of God himself. We are no longer in Adam, but then we are in Christ. This is the gospel. And it's received by faith. It's received in repentance. It's received by you acknowledging your sin and putting your hope and faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. And when you do, you still struggle with sin. You still fight this battle. Here's a way to think about it. We're Advent, right? We're in Advent. Advent means it implies the waiting. We're waiting for the Advent. But evil is a defeated foe, but evil is still in its death throes let me say it this way. Maybe you can remember it this way. That snake is still squirming. The snake is still squirming. You see it in the cosmic battle. We also see it in our own hearts and lives and everywhere in between. The, the sin that's part of our fleshly DNA, we haven't, we haven't sloughed that off yet. We haven't escaped that yet. And so we're still in this battle. And even though Ultimately, Jesus has cried out, it is finished. We're still waiting. We're in its time of Advent. And we struggle and we fight and sometimes we experience the pain. Sometimes we bring that pain on ourselves. 
Other times, others bring pain upon us because of their sin, because of the hurt. There's a sense in which we live all of our lives in Advent, waiting for the redemption that God promises in Jesus Christ. And therefore, we walk by faith. We believe that the rest of His promises are sure because we look at this promise from the garden and now we have the advantage of looking back and we can see the promise way back in the garden, but then more recently we can see the fulfillment of that promise in the seed of the woman whose heel was crushed. And that's what the cross is about. And we recognize your heart and mind need to think this way. We recognize that if God will keep that promise and that promise applies to me, then he will keep all of his promises for the future. You see, we're talking about hope. And hope is not hope so. Hope is confidence in God's promises. And God promised in the garden what he would do. And the entire Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, the scriptures of Israel, reveal the outworking of it until we come to Jesus and the cross. And then we see its fulfillment. And we now live in the benefits of that, but still struggling with sin because the snake is still squirming. But one day, we'll be delivered. And that's our hope. And I remind you again, the two often repeated words by Simon Peter, when Jesus said, will you leave also? And Simon says, well, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. This is the hope in which we live. I'll finish early this morning. Let me just wrap it up by saying this. This is what this looks like this week. It looks like as people of God, forgiven through Jesus Christ, it looks like leaning into the brokenness with the hope of God's promise. You recognize the people that live next door to you. Where do they find their hope? The people that help you at Trader Joe's, the people that work next to you at work, your family members that you're interacting with through the holiday season, the vast majority of them, they have no ground or basis for hope. And yet we have this promise. We know why the world is the way it is. It's because of the fall. We know why, even though we're forgiven, we still struggle. It's because of rebellion that still resides in the culture, in the world. It still resides in our flesh. But we know the promise, the promise of forgiveness, the promise of the gospel. And so here's what we're able to do. We're able to look unflinchingly at the brutality of the pain and loss and devastation around us. There is never a place for God's people to pretend as though the pain is not there. It's real, it's pervasive, it's everywhere. And we can look at it unflinchingly because at the very same time we can look unflinchingly at the brutality around us, we hold unwaveringly to the assurance of God's good promise. That's the reason for the hope that resides within us, as Peter says. We need to be ready to give a reason for the hope. And can I be simplistic with you this morning as I close? The reason for the hope is Jesus. What God has done for us in Jesus Christ. 
You say, oh, but that's not going to do when my marriage is falling apart. Yes, it will. You say, oh, but that won't do because I'm facing cancer. Yes, it will. You say, oh, well, that won't do because it looks like the world's going to head into World War III. Yes, it will. This is the hope, the only hope that matters. And it's through the promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So you see what happens is that Advent takes on a deeper meaning. Advent takes on more significance. We remember His first coming, but we look forward to His return. And we recognize that all of that is guaranteed because of His good promise. Here's your takeaway this morning. Our wounded champion has already won the victory. Our wounded champion has already won the victory. This is what God said in the garden. This is what God accomplished at the cross. And this is what God will demonstrate in glory for eternity. To His glory and His glory alone. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the great promise, the promise that gives us hope. Lord, we recognize that you didn't have to leave this promise after the fall. That it was your kind mercy and grace to those who would believe, to those who would repent, it was a promise that you left from the very beginning, that you gave that we might have hope. If we came away from Genesis 3 with the victory of the evil one and the curse that came upon your creation, it was look as though you were overcome. But we know that you were not. Indeed, in the mystery of who you are, we know you were not taken by surprise. But that somehow in your powerful sovereignty, this all was part of your plan to demonstrate your greater glory. But in this story, which is history, we learn why the world is the way it is. And we even see why we still struggle even this week. But we also find the ground for our hope, which is the good promise of your gospel. I pray that you will help us this morning make the connection between this glorious, biblical, wondrous truth in history, this deep theology of what you were doing in history and are doing. Help us make the connection between that and the struggles that we'll face this week. Help us be people who live despite the fall and despite rebellion that's all around us. Help us be people who live out the promise to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.